are in the fourth and the final week of this sermon series, Family Photo. Throughout the last four weeks, we've been looking at how God's picture for a picture-perfect family looks, starting with all the places that God has each member of his family stand. We looked at how God deals with anger and family feuds. We looked at the special place, at the special role that dads have in God's family, the way he set the family unit up. So what did I do to prepare for the very last week of this sermon series? Well, I read a book on what is quite possibly the most dysfunctional family you will ever hear of. It's, it's a book, actually, that it's about, well, a father and his sons. And it starts out, when the father was little, he flat out steals his family business from his brother. And the worst part, his mom helped him do it. It's this weird story that has chapters in it that are rather head-scratching, maybe even gut-wrenching a little bit, because this, this father runs off and he lives with his uncle for a little bit, falls in love with his cousin, and ends up marrying her. And not just that, because his uncle's this rather sleazeball of a guy, he ends up marrying his other cousin as well. And what's even more bizarre, he doesn't just have two wives Well, he has two open marriages, and he not only has children with his two wives, but children with two other women as well, and he ends up having just a boatload of kids. Oh, it gets gets rather weird because he's got all of these kids, and yet he picks one who's his favorite, who's his favorite child, and, well, as you can imagine, the other kids don't really appreciate that very much, and they bully him. And I'm in no way condoning their actions If you read the book, the young man didn't help himself any. He flaunted the favoritism right in his family's face, but nothing deserved what actually happened to him. A couple of his brothers, his older brothers, got caught up in the wrong crowd, and they sold him to some human traffickers. Just when you think it couldn't get any worse, well, There's some rated R chapters that I'll skip, but it gets to this point where something good actually happens to the young man. He gets a nice government position. It's a really good job, actually, until one night at a work party, his boss's wife hits on him. And being an upstanding man, he goes in the next week, reports it to HR, but guess what happens? HR, with attempted rape, convicted, and finds himself sitting in a foreign prison. You can't make this stuff up. Back at home, well, the family business begins to fail, go figure. Dad gets older and he grows more bitter because not only has he lost his favorite child, he's also about to lose his business. And on top of it all, the country they're living in gets walloped by a natural disaster. But then the story gets even more crazy. Because, you see, just as this family's on their very last leg, he gets out of prison. The young man gets out of prison, and he doesn't just get his job back. He gets this wild promotion because he's really, really good at the things he does. And before you know it, he's sitting in what is the equivalent of a cabinet position for the United States president. And it's then that this entire book Chapter after chapter is leading up to what is the most improbable, inconceivable family reunion you'll ever hear of. 
And what makes it so mind-boggling is the fact that when this family meets the son who they abused, who they sold out, well, we hear him utter the three most difficult words that I think there is to say in all the English language. You know what those three words are? Have you ever thought about that? I'll tell you, I'll give you a hint. It's not, I love you. Hopeless romantics, they want you to think, I love you, is, is that difficult thing to say. But I hear people saying, I love you all the time. Yes, they say it to their family, to their spouses, but people say it to their pets. They say it to inanimate objects, and they, they say it about the lemon meringue pancakes that my wife made me yesterday. Yes, people have no problem saying, I love you. So what is it? Well, there's a professor by the name of Amanda Waterman. Uh, she's a professor of psychology at the University of Leeds. And she did a study that said adults and children have a very, very difficult time saying, I don't know. And while I do know what she's trying to say, I don't know if she's right, because I think there's another thing. How about, I'm sorry. Is that tough to say? I think sometimes it is, because not only is I don't know hard, to admit when we don't know something, but saying I'm sorry is hard when we don't want to admit we did wrong. But I hear people saying it all the time. People do apologize for wrongs and offenses, but also people apologize for things that don't really make sense. This last week I was out with my son and someone says, I'm sorry, but you have a smiley baby. I'm, I'm so sorry. I just, I just wanted to tell you that. I'm like, no, I'm actually happy that I have a happy baby. Now, people say, I'm sorry. People say, I love you. People say, I don't know pretty easily. But what makes this family reunion that we're about to look at so incredible is the fact that when the son who was sold off, the son who sat in prison meets the people who did it to him, he says, I forgive you. I forgive you. I think those are quite possibly the most difficult words in the English language, and today we're going to look at why. Why it is that saying I forgive you is so difficult. And we're going to look at that book that I told you about. If you didn't catch it before, the book that I was talking about was the book called Genesis. And if you haven't read it before, I highly recommend it. It is an international all-time bestseller. It's very good. And what I told you, or what I summarized, was actually the second half of the book. The story of the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. The story of the founding fathers of our faith. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, in particular, who had two wives and 12 sons, and one of them named Joseph, a young man who was favored with a technicolored coat, who had dreams of his family bowing down to him, who was sold off to Egypt, who worked in Potiphar's house, who was tempted by Potiphar's wife, and who ultimately rose to the position of second in command, second only to the Pharaoh. We're going to read his story. We're going to look at his story. And while Joseph's story is an incredible story in and of itself, what it teaches us about forgiveness is even more incredible. Romans chapter 15, verse 4, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Bible-believing Christians believe that everything in scripture, even in the Old Testament, yes, 
is to teach us something. And I also believe that everything in the Bible, including, yes, even things in the Old Testament, is to point us to Christ. It's to point us to Christ and so that we might have encouragement and so that we might have the hope that only he can provide. And what the Old Testament and all of Scripture does is not only provide prophecies which point ahead to the Christ, to the Messiah, but it also provides people. People to point ahead to Christ, to who he would be, what he would be like, and what he would do. We call these types of Christ or foreshadows of Christ. And we find one such type of Christ in Joseph. In Joseph, who teaches us a thing about forgiveness. Today we're going to talk all about how forgiveness for the families focuses us in the only place it should, comforts us in the only way it can, and also, and also does something that nothing else can. Create some really, really awesome family reunions. Now forgiveness is a pretty common thing, right? We talk about it at church all the time, but what I want to do today is hold it up and turn it around and flip it over and look at three really distinct aspects of what Christian forgiveness, what Christ-like forgiveness means. We're going to do that by looking at Genesis chapter 45. So if you would, open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 45. We're going to start right at verse 1. I summarized a bit of the story already, but what's about to happen here is that Joseph, who had been kind of having, well, some fun with his brothers maybe, or just to find out if they're sincerely sorry for what they did, had sent them on a couple of errands back and forth between where Israel had been living and Egypt during this time of a famine. He put a gold cup in his youngest brother Benjamin's sack and, well, the brothers think they're about to be in trouble, about to be accused of stealing. But then this happens. Joseph tells them who he is. Genesis chapter 45, verse 11. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were unable to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there had been a famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by his great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all of Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all that you have. I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. This is the word of our God. 
In their book entitled Forgiveness is Strange, the authors Massey Knorr and Marina Catacuzino describe what it is that empowers and enables us to offer forgiveness to those who offends us. They look at it from a historical, from a cognitive, from a psychological perspective, and their findings are interesting. What it is that we feel, what it is that we go through to forgive. But Joseph here offers a, an equally, if not more profound truth that all of Scripture echoes. And that's forgiveness is something that is empowered, something that is enabled, not from ourselves, but rather something that is just as the authors described, something strange, something foreign to us. Listen, Joseph, he said it like this. He said, come to me. And when the brothers had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one who you sold into Egypt. Verse 5, do not be distressed or do not be angry with yourselves because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Verse 7, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant and to save your lives by a great deliverance. What Joseph recognized is that by faith, he understood the same force that was moving in him to do good, to save lives, was also in a way forcing him to offer that same love, that same goodness, that same grace and forgiveness to his brothers. He had no other choice but to step before his brothers and, and say, listen, you had bad planned, but God had good planned. And, and I, I may have thinking, been able to think bad thoughts, but... Here's what God says. God says, I offer you forgiveness. Here, Joseph is nothing other than a mini Christ. Someone who, who is very much like Christ in every way. Someone who was, who was forced to go to a place that was not their home. Someone who was forced to, to suffer punishment despite his innocence. Someone who, who didn't complain and someone who very much resembled Christ who, like a lamb before his shears was silent, he didn't open his mouth. And he offered forgiveness. Am I saying Joseph is perfect? Am I saying Joseph is Jesus? No. But what I am saying is this, that thousands of years before the New Testament writers inspired, the, whole, the Holy Spirit inspired New Testament writers to pen words about forgiveness, the Holy Spirit was moving Joseph to offer that forgiveness, to love like First John says, for no other reason than God first loved us. To forgive as Christ forgave us and to do what our Lord taught us in the Lord's Prayer. And that is to forgive others as we have been forgiven. That's what Joseph did. Yeah, forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is really, really hard because it's, it's not what we want. We want to see the scales balanced. We want to see justice served. And yet what we see instead is Christ. And we see the picture of forgiveness, pictured by Joseph and pictured by a man named Chris. In 2007, Chris was out to eat with his family, his family of four who was expecting the fifth on the way. And on the way home, Chris looked and he saw a car move into his lane and, and come towards him and it was too close to do anything else. He couldn't swerve out of the way and it hit him. 
The car flipped over and landed in a ditch. And immediately, Chris turned around and saw that on impact, his two youngest children in the back seat had died. In that moment, he turned and, and looked and watched as his pregnant wife inhaled for the last time and also exhaled for the very last time. And Chris remembers being in that car and screaming a cry of grief that he, he hasn't experienced ever nor since and feeling the utter pain of loss that is, that is indescribable. And yet, the story goes that as Chris was taken out of the wreckage, as he was removed from that, one of the very first things he did was ask, is the person in the other vehicle all right? And when paramedics told him he is, he said, then I want you to tell them that no matter who they are, no matter the circumstances, they're forgiven. Christ forgives them. We hear that story, and it's mind-blowing. But what forgiveness does is it, it shows this. Forgiveness shows us, if you're following along and you're filling the blanks, it's that forgiveness focuses on the relationship, not rightness. Forgiveness focuses on the relationship, not rightness. What was happening to Chris wasn't right. What happened to Joseph wasn't right. But because of a relationship they had, the relationship they had with Christ, a relationship that made them right with God, a relationship that won for them righteousness, it wasn't about who's right. It's not about what's right. It's about a relationship, a relationship that Chris went on to form with this young man who actually met him a few months later and has now even still continued a relationship with him, one in which he encourages him, lets him know that he's forgiven, and lets him know the hope that he has. That's what Chris did. That's what Joseph did. He focused not on what's right, but on the relationship that they had in Christ. That's what we're encouraged as well. So often when we think about this, we want to have a grudge. We want to have an attitude towards someone who has done us wrong. And yet what focusing on the relationship, the relationship we have in Christ does is first and foremost, it restores the relationship we have with him. It restores the relationship that we have with others. And it also, it makes right the relationship we have with God. Because not only do we free people from guilt, when we forgive, we, are, we free ourselves from grudges. We free ourselves to grow in faith. And we free ourselves to go like Chris, like Joseph, and through our forgiveness, let people see Christ. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is something that focuses us on the relationship, focuses families on the relationship. And forgiveness is also something that comforts comforts families, and not before forgiveness shockingly comforts families. Let me explain what I mean by that. Take a look. Joseph steps before his brothers, and he finally reveals himself. He says, I'm Joseph. I'm your brother whom you sold into slavery." And the brothers can't move. They're terrified. His brothers, verse 3, were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. I mean, think about it. They were speechless because they had just seen a ghost, if you will. 
They had just seen someone come back from the dead, so to speak. Someone whom they have mistreated, someone who they abused their entire lives. And there he was. What they expected was for Joseph to take years of pent-up pain and in a cold and calloused way, take it out on them and exact his vengeance. That's not what Joseph does. What Joseph does is say to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph. How that name must have hit them like a ton of bricks, but he says it again. He says, I am your brother Joseph, the one whom you sold into Egypt. At the very first meeting he has with his brothers, what he does is he brings up the sin that his brothers had against him. He brings up the wrong that they did to him. He says, you can't deny it. It's there. He says, this is your sin. You're responsible for it. You sold me out. You hurt me. You caused my pain. He says, own that. He doesn't downplay sin. He doesn't deny sin. But this is why that F word is so offensive. That's why it's so shocking. And I'm talking about forgiveness. It's because it's not what you'd expect. What you'd expect is for him to say, you sinned, therefore you deserve punishment. You sinned, therefore watch out, I'm coming after you. You sinned, therefore I'm not going to have anything to do with you. But what he says is, you sinned. And because you sinned, therefore I forgive you. As soon as he brings up the wrong that they did, immediately after that, he said, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. He says, don't deny your sin, but don't be distressed. He says, don't be anxious about your sin. Don't be angry about your sin because your God is not angry with you. Your God is not angry upset with you. Your God has given you peace. Where there, was, where there was hostility, there's now joy and peace. That's what God steps in and says in forgiveness. What makes forgiveness so utterly shocking is that intrinsically tied up with the idea that there is sin is the idea that there is comfort. If you're filling in the blanks, it's this. It's that tied in with forgiveness is this, is that forgiveness confronts real sin and then comforts the repentant sinner. At the very same time that it it is real about sin, it comes forward and it comforts the repentant sinner. It holds out the opportunity for grace and love to those who confess their sin. This past week, as I was talking about this aspect of forgiveness with one of, one of my very good friends, um, they were brave enough to admit that forgiveness that is, is shockingly comforting to sinners is something they don't know if they could do. And this friend told me the story of what happened in, in 2007 in, excuse me, 2015 in Charleston, South Carolina at Together Emmanuel Church. On a Wednesday night, A group of a dozen people gathered together for a Bible class, including a guest that evening, a guest by the name of Dylan Roof. And after the 45-minute Bible study was up and the group stood up, folded their hands, 
closed their eyes and bowed their heads to pray, Dylan took out a pistol and fired 77 rounds into the group that was there today, killing nine people. A murder, a disgusting murder, motivated by hate, motivated by bigotry and racism. When this young man, Dylan, stood on trial, the entire church and several of the family members of those victims turned out. And when they talked, they had the opportunity to talk to Dylan, to say something to him at the sentencing. And they were real. They were not shy about the pain, the anger that it caused them. But in the very same breath, they were not shy about the comfort that is available to someone, someone even like Dylan, should they repent of their sins? One sister of a, of a victim who was killed said this, I acknowledge that I'm very angry. She said this to Dylan. She said, the, but the one thing my sister always enjoyed in our family is that we are a family built on love. We have no room for hating, and so we have to forgive. And so I pray to God for your soul. Another family member who lost a loved one that day, offered forgiveness to Ruth and then said, if at any point you're sentenced and you're not in prison and you want me to come and pray with you, I will do that because I forgive you. What my friend who, told, who reminded me about this story brought up is, is something I think we all can admit on some level is that that level of forgiveness is something that offends me. It's something that I don't think I could do if I was in that position. And now, I want you to think about it. I, don't, I pray that none of you are ever in the position where you're, you're facing someone who's taken your loved one and, and you're, you're asked to forgive them. And I, and I hope you're never in the position where you look at your family members who sold you into slavery in Egypt and you're asked to forgive them. But what I do hope the stories of Emmanuel Church and the stories of Joseph do is make you assess, make you evaluate how you're forgiven right now. How are you forgiving your children when they mess up? How are you forgiving your children when they do something wrong? Do you have a checklist of things that you make them do before things are right in your house again? Or do you pour out so much surprise and they don't know what to do except look at how their, how their father or their mother resembles Christ and they go and live like him? Or do you forgive like Peter? Peter who wanted to know if it was four or seven or 77 times that I should forgive my spouse. Because some of you have been married long enough where they're getting close to 77. They're like at 75 and you don't know if you can give up those two more forgiveness tokens. Or do you love so lavishly, so much so that your, your husband or your wife is surprised, is surprised again and again how you are Christ to them? How about how you forgive your brothers and your sisters, your brothers and sisters here at church, the person that didn't say hello to you last Sunday, or the person that really, really upset you, do you have a bunch of conditions that you make them meet before you befriend them, before you go out of your way to say hello? Or do you love them in such a way that if an outsider knew what they did to you, they would be surprised? They'd be maybe even offended at how you just so easily, so readily forgive. 
That's what forgiveness does. Forgiveness, first, first of all, it focuses us on the relationship we have with Christ. And then it offers an out-of-this-world comfort to those who are in Christ. Because as 1 Corinthians says, God was reconciling or reuniting the world to us in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Is that how we forgive? focuses us on Christ, comforts us in Christ. But if those are the only two aspects that we highlight, and I think, I think sometimes it is in churches, that's only half the gospel. If we only tell people, hey, your sins are forgiven, now go be warm and well-fed, I think we do a disservice to those who offended us, and we certainly do a disservice to our Savior. Because there's more. There's more to forgiveness and Joseph shows us. He says this in verse 4. He says, Come close to me. You shall live in the region of Goshen and, and be near me. You, your children, grandchildren, your fox and herds and all that you have, I will provide for you there. What forgiveness does is this. Forgiveness doesn't just end when you say, I forgive you. Forgiveness doesn't stop with those but words. Sometimes it, we might want it to. Someone hurts us, we say, I forgive you, now I forget you. But Christian forgiveness doesn't forgive and forget. First of all, we can't do that. Joseph didn't do that. No, forgiveness forgives and then it reunites. It reunites people with their God and it reunites them with people who are like Christ here today. Christians. Joseph didn't just say, hey, you're forgiven, go home, say hi to dad. No, they would have died in the, in, the, in the natural disaster that was going on. They would have died. They would have starved. What he does, he says, come close to me. And perhaps there is no greater, greater picture of what our God does to us in Christ. He says, come close to me. Not despite your sin, not despite your wrong, but precisely because of it. Come close to me and I forgive you. And then grace upon grace, I don't just say you're forgiven. I give you more. I give you a place to live. I give you good things. I give you family. I give you blessings. I give you food and clothes. I give you talents. I give you treasures to enjoy on this earth. And most of all, despite your sin, no, because of it, I give you a mansion prepared for you in heaven. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness that just doesn't stop at I forgive you, but continues on and, and creates the greatest family reunion there ever was. Like Carl's dad. Carl's older now. And if you knew Carl, it might surprise you. Carl's a pastor. He's a well-respected pastor. And Carl's not his real name, but Carl's about ready to retire. He's a well-respected pastor, but when he was a senior in high school, he stole his father's car. And he went out, and him and four of his buddies got drunk. And Carl drove, drove home that night, and because he was intoxicated, blew through a stop sign and T-boned another car. Fell up his father and was hurt. People were just really, really shaken. And Carl had to call up his father and tell him the two things, the three things, all the wrong things that he did. His dad brought him home. And his dad sat him down in his home office. 
And Carl began to shake. He began to cry and his dad told him that's, that's shock. And then he walked over to him and he put his hand on him and he said, I know how we can make this right. And Carl asked him, how, what can I do? And, he, and because Carl's father was focused on the relationship, not what's right, he said, well, there's nothing that you can do to make this right. But here's what we're going to do to make this right. He said, tomorrow we're going to go get you your own car. And he forgave him. Carl says when he tells that story, it, it offends people. It bothers people. It shocks people how, how much comfort that father gave him. He should have been in trouble. He could have killed his friends. He could have taken someone else's lives. He should get a ticket for all the laws he broke. He should get in trouble for drinking underage. But he forgave him. And then he didn't just forgive him. He reunited him. Perhaps no great example is there than that, than our Father who, whom we cannot repay, our Heavenly Father who we cannot repay, and yet he forgives us and then reunites us with him, giving us all that he has and then some. Christians, may we pray that our God daily grants us that forgiveness for all the sins that we do, but would you please let me pray for you that the Spirit of the Most High God empowers us with strength and faith and courage to forgive others just like that.